This is What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch. Today, I'm joined by Phil Walter of Divergent Options and uh, Twitter fame. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Maggie. I appreciate the invite. So, you know, I, for those that know you or know your website or know your Twitter know that you have a long and storied career in a variety of military services and other national security places. Um, but before we get into today's topic, which is Afghanistan, exciting, let's talk a little bit about Divergent Options. What is that? So uh, DivergentOptions.org is a website that jumped into my mind as an idea last October and we went live in November, and I work with uh, Steve Leonard, also known as Doctrine Man. That's right, Doctrine Man. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and uh, Bob Hine, U.S. Navy captain, recently retired, and we run the website, and we try to get folks to write for us, and we produce 1,000-word-ish uh, articles that analyze national security situations and present multiple options and kind of look at the risk and gain of each option. But at the end of it, they never recommend a specific option, and we really like that. We kind of want the reader to uh, to decide what they think is best. We try not to take sides at all, just present options. And Divergent Options is solicits papers from anybody, right? You put that out on Twitter. Yes, I try to put that out several <laughs> times a week. And the biggest thing we focus on is uh, good ideas and good writing, which are more important to us than you know race, sex, language, pedigree, nationality, or anything. If folks have a good idea and want to write, please get in touch. Very cool. Well, we will obviously put a little link to that on our website. And our Women in Security fellows are all big fans. Uh, and we are grateful to you actively making space for other voices. So we're glad to have you on this week. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk about Afghanistan. Um, and that's a lot. It's a big word. It's a very big place. And there's a lot happening. So I will let you set the stage. Because you can't just talk about Afghanistan as a, as a broad idea, right? What are we talking about? So, you know, recently in the media, you, you know, the listeners and have probably seen that President Trump is considering sending additional troops to Afghanistan. And, you know, numbers have varied between 1,000 and 3,000. Um, there have been estimates that more would be needed. And uh, several different Washington Post articles have looked at the issue and projected about $23 billion annually would be uh, continue to be required for the U.S. and ISAF mission there. And as I look at it, and we're going into, you know, year 16 almost of this uh, involvement in Afghanistan, I'm kind of taken aback by um, the activities that were still that are still going on there. I'm taken aback by the gains the Taliban are continuing to have despite all U.S., uh, Afghan, Afghanistan government and ISAF efforts. And, and so I'm kind of, as I think about it a lot, I'm really kind of going back to uh, – you know, what is the original stimulus for all of this involvement? And, um, you know, maybe we need to start from there and unfortunately kind of go all the way back to September 11th, 2001 and relook everything. So what was the original stimulus? Yeah. Why, why, why are we there? Yeah. So, you know, as, as everyone I'm sure is aware, you know, on September 11th, 2001, we had, there were, uh, 19 people who hijacked a series of airline airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Center and, and the Pentagon. And, and then uh, another one was crashed in Pennsylvania before it could proceed to its target. But um, And then afterwards, we President Bush then s- kind of set us on this course that we're at now. But 
as I've been thinking about it more and more recently, I kind of peel it back. And, and if you separate, in my mind, as I separate the ideology that motivated the attackers to conduct the attack, as I, as I separate the you know, ideas of safe havens and, and, and ungoverned spaces and all these gigantic theories of things and, and that we've looked at since 9-11, to me, I, I'm, I'm really harking back to, you know, though this be an extremely simplistic um, point of view, it, really the September 11th attacks point to an airline security failure. I mean, it, it, right. it's, it's very simple, and, and I don't want to seem as though I am... Um, downplaying any of the sacrifices of any sure. of anyone who served there but as i look at the current situation i i wonder if if based upon an airline security failure if the things that we're doing or or plan to continue to do are appropriate i think that's a really good point and as you said you know not calling into question anybody's sacrifice or service but just really looking at what was the not you know obviously an airline security failure was not the root cause right people were the root cause but that initial systems failure doesn't make sense that it's gotten us here um so you mentioned you know what we're doing what we continue to do what we will do what are we doing what are we continuing to do and and what will we do according to current you know most recent thoughts so um you know from my point of view we are the United States and our allies are are continuing this this quest to support the government of Afghanistan and the military of Afghanistan, and we continue to provide money and training and contractors and resources. Um, and you know, despite all these years of of, of efforts, you know, just this month uh, in May 2017, there was a very interesting. Um, video posted on a website called Long War Journal that showed uh, what I would estimate as a former, you know, infantryman and an infantry officer, kind of at least an infantry company's worth or companies reinforced of uh, Taliban fighters in in, a, in Sangin, which is in Helmand, which is right. in the southern part of Afghanistan. And, you know, these fighters are assembling in the open, parading in the open, being cheered on by the locals in the open. And there there seems, at least according to the video, there seems to be no uh, perception of threat, no worry of threat. Right. They're not worried about getting bombed or droned or right. spotted or engaged. They're just hanging. Exactly. And so as I, as I look at that video and I think about so many years of effort and money and other things, I... I have to ask myself, um, you know, what are U.S. interests in Afghanistan? What are the intensity of those interests? And if after, you know, almost 16 years of, of effort and money and treasure and blood and post-traumatic stress disorder and everything else, an infantry company reinforced worth of Taliban fighters can assemble in the open, um, to me that's an indicator that our current approach um, is not working. So you brought up an interesting point. You didn't just say, you know, what are our interests, but what are the intensity of our interests, right? Because it's not just about, is this important to the United States or not? Is it important to our allies or not? It's how important is whatever this particular interest is, and how much of a priority is it, and is it more important than other things? And perhaps that's the real question here. Um, 
so do you think this is, you know, what do you think the intensity of our interest is? And do you think that's something we've, you know, stopped to think about any time recently? Well, so I think I think the primary interest that the U.S. has in Afghanistan is is being able to ensure that it does not become a safe haven for bad guys who want right. to attack the United States. Like but an infantry company size worth of Taliban? Well, so I'm not really worried about that infantry company yeah, with yeah. a Taliban because most of them don't have passports, I yeah, would assume, they're and they're, anyway. yeah. they're not going to jump on an airplane at Kabul International. But yeah. but the uh, but that's an interesting thing, and we talked about that. Many years ago when I was in Afghanistan, You know, we used to say, I'm not, I'm not scared of the Taliban fighter who's never left his province, who's shaken his fist at a helicopter as we fly by. I'm scared of a Western-trained person, a, you know, a Westernized yeah. person who can exist in Westernized countries, has a passport, and goes to Afghanistan to receive some type of training. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as, as I look at things now, I wonder if, if, if the U.S. interest in Afghanistan is ensuring it doesn't become a safe haven for people to come attack the U.S., you know, can that be done without having to put 10,000 U.S. troops on the ground, a possible surge of up to 3,000 more, a cost of $23 billion a year for who knows how long, um, and the fact that, you know, were those uh, Taliban members in Sangin assembled for their parade, there could also be a safe haven down there right now full of people from all over the world who have passports and understand Western norms. And they could be down there training as we speak. So um, it's interesting to think about, you know, what are we doing? What should we be doing? Where should we be going? And you also raise an interesting point in articulating what our interests are. You said the interest is ensuring that Afghanistan does not become a safe haven for people to attack the United States. You did not say that the U.S. interest is ensuring Afghanistan does not become a safe haven for terrorists. Those are two different things, right, to a certain extent. Our our concern on a more basic level, whether this is right or wrong, you know, is always ensuring the homeland, right? Before we can, you know, what is your sphere of influence before you can even kind of, like, track out? Um, Do you think we're doing that? Do you think we're dealing with that basic interest of making sure this is not a safe haven for people to then come and, and attack the United States. So I think it depends on, on whether you, well, first I would say, I think, I think globally we are. Right. And I, but I think that, that there's different ideas on it. And one idea is, you know, is it a, you know, and I'm making air quotes, you can't see me under the table, (laughs) you know, is, is the, is the, is this a, you know, quote, war to be won? Right. Or is it a, quote, threat to be managed? Two very different things. Two very different things. They require two different levels of effort. Yep. They require two different mindsets. They require different ideas of longevity. Uh, and so far, uh, I think a lot of what the U.S. does is publicly proclaims this is a war to be won. Yep. But in actual foreign policy decisions, it seems as though it is a threat to be managed. Right. And Afghanistan right now kind of falls somewhere in between because the U.S. isn't really all in on war to be won. Sure. And they're not necessarily all out on threat to be managed. Right. And and so it, you know. It then just, you get neither. Yeah. Then you get neither. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the larger questions, too, are if... 
you know, if there's 10,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan and they surge 3,000 more, you know, from a from a forces standpoint, so right. that's 13,000 troops. In addition to everything else. Figure, multiply that times three because you've got one group in country, one group on leave, and one group training. Yep. And then you know, I got a really interesting discussion last year with uh, with a friend who said, you know, objected to all the contractors being in Afghanistan and said, <laughs> if it's a if it's an important enough thing, then the U.S. military should do it. And I said, I, I disagree. I believe that the U.S. military should do things that only the U.S. military can do. Right. And if the mission is to teach uh, foreign countries' soldiers small arms training, I can contract that out. Yeah. Um, what I don't want to do is take More a U.S. Army Infantry Brigade that that can deter the Russians and right. then have them, you know, majoring in the minors, so to speak, and deploying to Afghanistan and teaching small unit tactics to people. Right. Um, and so... And not fighting a war or deterring it, the Russians. It, exactly. And obviously, you know, the, the Russians are, a, are an existential threat to the U.S. Right. Um, and so as we look at this long-term kind of what forces does the U.S. have? What interest does the U.S. have? We need to make sure that we're not taking a warfighting organization, diluting its skill over time in order to achieve a nearly unachievable end state, and an end state that even if achieved may not necessarily be tied to your actual objective, which is to protect the U.S. and ensure that there aren't safe havens for terrorists that want to attack the U.S., because if you know, even if we wave our magic wand and Afghanistan is no longer a safe haven, you know there were on, there was only you know 19 people involved in the 9/11 right. attacks. You can assemble a group of 19 people almost <laughs> anywhere in the world pretty easily. Yeah, well, and it sounds like maybe what you're saying is that our ends, our ways, and our means just are not in line, right? Um, shocking, but more than that, these are questions of force readiness. These are questions of, of personnel. These are questions of really basic foreign policy, defense strategy, national security strategy, right? At, at like truly a fundamental level, like, like what is our U.S. national security strategy and what, what do we want, what can we have, and what makes sense? You know, and we've talked a little bit about this difference between a war to be won and a threat to be managed. And, you know, some people argue, I, I, honestly don't know where I personally come down on this. I know it's a soundbite, but whatever. Uh, that the American public wants a war to be won, but they don't want the cost of a war to be won. And, you know, I think probably to a certain extent that's true. I think it probably also depends who you're defining as the American public. You know, who are you asking? But do you think that plays a role in our inability to kind of build coherent strategy? Is that you know, we recognize that the American public, the American people, want a war to be won, but don't want the cost of that, and it's not truly attainable. And the the challenge in front of us is not the kind of challenge in which there is a war to be won. It's, in fact, a, a threat to be managed. And so because of these kind of conflict between these two very basic distinctions, you know, we're sort of SOL anyways. Yeah. So I think some of it, some of what you touched on has to do with... Um, popular culture. And I actually wrote an article once where I spoke to the fact that, you know, we have four Rambo films in the United States, but we have no films about NSC 68. Yeah. Um, 
So that's just kind of, you know, part of that's just a cultural thing. Um, what the, you know, what the American people want, I don't necessarily think Afghanistan is even on their radar unless right. they have sons or daughters that are yeah. um, going there because there's no, there's no more conscription and there's not necessarily taxation increases applied, you know, right. that, that, that align with our Afghanistan efforts. I think if, if they, if President Trump said we're going to surge fifty thousand troops to Afghanistan and we're going to increase sales tax by three percent to, do to it, support yeah. it, then suddenly there would be opinions. Yeah. Um, but but you know at at present there's just not. And there's a lot of apathy. I don't know. Way. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, depending know. on where you're looking. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it's apathy or if it's more. You know, at the end of the day. Um, some you know if you look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what I always talk about is you know people in Washington D.C. Um, are having a self-actualization discussion right. when the voting public is having a food on the table, oh, taking yeah. care of their family discussion, and, and a lot of times we just talk past each other. Yeah. The you know I think the overall other overarching question that that the Trump administration needs to answer is just that you know if you go back to originally. The original stimulus of 9/11, you know, is invading another country, toppling its rulers, occupying it, installing and installing a new ruling party, an appropriate response to an airline security failure, especially when the rulers aren't the ones that attack the U.S. And so, the interesting right. context is: is no matter what the Taliban says or does, they're still not on the kind of State Department foreign terrorist organization list. Yeah, what's that about? I mean, maybe that's a whole other podcast, but interesting point worth highlighting. Well, and it's, I would argue that that is a symbolic acceptance that the Taliban is going to have to be negotiated with. Right. We can't just wave our hands and say they are all terrorists because then there is, then short of outright high order violence for many, many years in Afghanistan, there is not going to be a political solution. Right. And a political solution is what we're aiming for, right? I, I would hope so, but it's interesting to see the articles that discuss the extra troops in Afghanistan saying, you know, this is what this will help us, you know, achieve leverage over the Taliban to bring them to the negotiating table. But historically, if you look at conflicts that have brought parties to the negotiating table, m- maybe just historically within the 20th century, you know, in Korea, we went into North Korea. Yeah. In Vietnam, we invaded Cambodia. We yeah. we reinitiated bombing on North Vietnam. So, I don't see three thousand troops as being the thing that brings the Taliban to the table. Now, if you, if the U.S. is going to suddenly start doing massive, you know, brigade-sized cross-border attacks into Pakistan to hit Taliban safe havens and drive the tanks right in through some of those right. towns. You know, maybe that's a discussion point, but the reality of that scenario is that the United States will always prioritize Pakistan's Pakistan's sovereignty yep. and nuclear security yes. over anything that happens in Afghanistan. Right. So, the idea that three thousand troops, con- more U.S. troops, geographically confined within the borders of Afghanistan, is going to be the thing that brings the Taliban to the negotiating table—that is just completely detached from reality. Well, and there's also an interesting point, right, that you've brought up that, you know, these conflicts in the 20th century, the dueling parties were attached to a government. Taliban is not a sovereign nation. They are not representing a sovereign nation. They are not 
at, I mean, by definition, running Afghanistan, right? They are not in charge of governance and statecraft in Afghanistan, officially. So that adds a whole other layer to this, right? Because like here you are trying to bring about a political solution that is not a, a truce or a negotiation between two states or two governments. It's really two states slash governments and a third stakeholder, which is like way more complicated, right? Well, um, it's, it's, I think it's complicated from a United States right. kind of, this is how we you think know, about the world. Yeah, this is yes. how we think about the world point of view. Right. You know, what, what's interesting is while someone in Kabul or someone in D.C. may say exactly what you said, the reality of the scenario, you know, as demonstrated right. by that video on the Long War Journal, oh, yeah. is that, you know, go down into Sangin and ask them who's in charge. Oh, for sure. And it's not going to be... It's not the government, but it's like, how do you, you know, bring who is actually in charge versus who says they're in charge and who's in, in charge in the eyes of the international community. How do you bring all these people together? Well, and, and so, you know, the, the largest, you know, question that, that begs into that is, you know, what, you know, can the Taliban be made to feel as though they can meet their goals through a political process right. As that is part of the government of Afghanistan instead of through fighting? I don't know that answer. Right. When, a uh, you know, quick personal story, when I left Afghanistan, um, when I was there, I was in civilian clothes, in civilian vehicles with a long beard and blending in and things like that. And the day I got ready to leave, I the night before, I shaved off my beard. I was very happy to yeah. not have my fist long beard anymore. Yeah. And as I was l driving to the airport in a civilian vehicle, um, I I was behind a screen in the van, and, and I saw what I knew to be a member of the Taliban based upon the way they were dressed and my experiences at the time. Mm -hmm. And they looked at that person, looked at me, and I looked at them, and they instantly, you know, saw I was an American and I was hiding behind the screen. And, and I will remember for the rest of my days the look on that, Taliban member's face because the look in his eyes I'm sitting here and I'm thinking yay I get to go home yeah F yay I get to go home so for me it was a trip it was an episode right this is their life for the Taliban member I looked at it was a way of life yeah and that you know there is there is victory or there is death and, I, and that's an extreme point of view but no but that's right yeah and at the end of the day you know a lot of what we do in u.s foreign policy and national security is what somebody on twitter recently uh, characterized to me as um, um playing the away game yeah and and there's only so much willpower you know u.s political military national security will that we can put forward when we play the away yeah, game yeah that you're in a sandbox you know there's like not in any reference to the geographic area, but in the idea that here you are in a fenced in kind of playground situation where there's some sort of supervision and and you might bring some of the pieces of sand home with you unintentionally when they get stuck in your shoes, but you don't live in that sandbox. You get up and go home. Exactly. And what's most interesting is a lot of the um, discussions that are happening now are similar to what happened when President Obama contemplated an Afghanistan surge. And sure. I'm sure you recall Vice President Biden had this idea that he called counterterrorism plus. Yes. Where he wanted to focus on, he said, hey, the problem is not the Taliban. The problem is al-Qaeda. And we need to do whatever we have to do to be able to continue to, you know, neutralize slash manage the threat from al-Qaeda. And so 
what's interesting to me is as I look at kind of the next this year, but then 10 years on, I think that counterterrorism plus is inevitable. Yep. Um, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of what president is in charge when they make the decision. Yeah. But I think this sustained $23 billion a year, let's surge, let's not, um, the Taliban still able to assemble groups of fighters in large numbers. I just, I, I really think counterterrorism plus is inevitable. It just determines, um, you know, what are the political uh, views that will push President Trump or the next president or somebody to finally make the counterterrorism plus call? But I do believe it's an inevitab- inevitability. So you kind of brought up an interesting point that brings us maybe a little indirectly back to where we started, right, with divergent options, this idea of bringing people into the fold, into the conversation who either were there before, but kind of like in a small corner of the internet, or maybe they're an intern or whatever. Um, And, you know, there's this saying, I wish there was a more eloquent way of saying it, I'm sure there is, but if you always do what you've always done with who you've always done it with, you will always get what you've always gotten. Um, And that has been, I think, a motivating factor for a lot of young people trying to get involved in foreign policy and national security and that we need fresh blood, right, and not just carbon copies experience-wise demographically. Um, Get those new voices in there and maybe, just maybe in some small way, there will be a chain reaction, right? Things will start to change. Do you believe that? Do you think that's possible? So I think it's possible, but I think it's more like a tectonic plate. Yeah. And I've described, um, I've joked with friends in D.C. before, you know, that all of us are tectonic plate specialists. You know, we move D.C. about the length of, you know, half of a thumbnail, half of the width of the thumbnail per year. Yeah. Um, I think what what is most interesting to me and what is most saddening at the same time mm-hmm. is I think oftentimes it's not a lack of ideas. It, it's a lack of willpower to make the decision. Yeah. It's, well, decision being decisive, decisive action, man, mm-hmm. so hard. And, and, and I think that having the willpower to say, um, you know, hey, we're not doing this anymore. But but what about America, the way the world sees blah, blah, Yeah, this isn't good for us. We're not doing it anymore. Yeah. Whatever it is. I mean, just. I don't I think that there are decisions that need to be made. I think that they I think that the decisions will be unpopular, mm-hmm. but I think that there needs to be overall a large public debate about the US continued involvement in Afghanistan and that tough decisions need to be made about what are our national interests, how are we going to pursue them, and how are we going to pursue our national interests in a way that does not enable continued Russian aggression that does not enable continued Chinese militarization in the South China Sea. Because while U.S. counterterrorism, you know, may want to primarily focus on protecting the U.S. interests from threats, you know, larger, um, though some will debate it, the United States still is a a primary underwriter of national security in a lot of different places in the world. And so the question is, how do you balance all these different things? Yep. Um, and so decisions will have to be made. So I will ask you our last question, which is, of course, what's next? And as you know, you can answer it however you so choose. There is no right or wrong answer. In my mind, there are better and worse answers, but we never tell you which one your answer is. Um, So Phil Walter of Divergent Options and many other things, 
what's next in Afghanistan? What should be next in Afghanistan? What's next for U.S. national security and foreign policy? Your, take your pick. I, I think what's next in Afghanistan is uh, probably not a surge of a lot of troops. I think that um, despite many preferences in D.C., uh, to you know, give it one more big try. Mm-hmm. I think that President Trump's business sense will mm-hmm. not allow him to uh, reinforce that. Um, I think that counterterrorism plus is inevitable. I think it should be inevitable mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the forces that we are bogging down in Afghanistan um, could be better used to focus on real threats to U.S. national security, real military threats, specifically Russia, Russian aggression and continued Chinese militarization in the South China Sea. Well, you are probably not wrong, even if people want you to be. But, Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, I hope to be on sometime and again. You'll be back. You may regret that option. Okay. <laughs> as divergent as it is. This is What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch. Feldman-Pilch.